Turn with me uh, to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, if, you need, if you want a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get you a Bible. If you need a Bible, raise up your hand. If you have one on your phone, don't use that. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's a joke, it's a joke. Okay, so uh, we are in Isaiah 40, and we're going to go all the way through 48. So here's what you need to know. One word right at the top of your page. You're going to need a journal for tonight or maybe write in your Bible or something. 40 through 48, you need to know one word. It's all about one word, Babylon. This is the section that deals with Babylon, and you'll need to know that. So let me just reorient us. This is important to the story. Isaiah prophesied during the time of the kings of the southern kingdom of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And we went through those in great detail when we went through 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings. And so those times are from around 770 uh, B.C. until uh, around 687 B.C. So I want you to mark this. This is going to be very important to the story. If you don't get what I say here at the beginning, you're not going to get the wonder and awe of the next nine chapters. So Isaiah is uh, prophesying during the time of those four kings. Remember, there's two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I just described to you four southern kings who Isaiah uh, prophesied during the time of, okay, uh, and, and I want you to remember this. He prophesied, you know, somewhere around 740 or so, probably to around 700 or so BC. And, and remember who was dominant at the time, the, this country called Assyria. I guarantee you this is going to make sense, but you've got to hang on here for about the first three or four minutes. So he lived, Isaiah did, under the threat that his northern uh, brothers and sisters, the ten tribe, were going to be overhauled or taken out by the Assyrian kingdom, or, or, or uh, yeah, kingdom. And in fact, in 722 BC, you know this, right? Assyria came into the northern kingdom and ripped them out and took them out forever, right? But then what happened is that Assyrian uh, army went right down into the southern kingdom, right to the gates of Jerusalem. And uh, they did so initially uh, very quickly after uh, Samaria fell, or excuse me, uh, northern kingdom fell. But then they came down, you remember this? They came down right to the gates of, um, uh, of Jerusalem and God miraculously saved them through an angel. And 185,000 Assyrians fell dead that day, and then they went back to their own place. Right? Okay. Now listen. Assyria's in charge during much of Isaiah's... Assyria's in charge of the world during... Of course, God's in charge. But humanly, they're in charge during much of Isaiah's reign. But there's going to come a time where another kingdom takes over Assyria, and that's Babylon. And that's Nebuchadnezzar and some other kings that you uh, may or may not know. You got it? 
But that wouldn't happen. Listen, it wouldn't happen till 586 BC. So a whole hundred more years, a hundred more years, listen to this, after Isaiah was alive. You get it? And Isaiah is talking about things of the Babylonians. So, so you're catching where I'm coming with this? Isaiah is being told things by God that were going to happen in the future. Now, wait a minute. I feel like uh, the guy on stage, is that good enough? Well, I got more. Actually, God's got more. He's got so much more in this for you because guess what? Another empire comes after the Babylonians. They're called the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians. Do you remember them? The Medes and the Persians. And in Daniel chapter 5, in Daniel chapter 5, you see that the Medes and the Persians <laughs> overthrow, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, the Medes and the Persians overthrow uh, the Babylonian Empire in one night, which was thought to be uh, not, uh, no one in the whole world could overthrow Babylon. Nobody could. It was the greatest city in the world. Uh, some of the, if you read about it, it's so impenetrable, nobody could. And it was impenetrable, uh, but the Persians figured out a way in one night to overthrow the Babylonians, Okay. But, but that wouldn't happen until a hundred years or so later after the Babylonian reign. Are you catching me? Isaiah's prophesying during an Assyrian Empire time. Babylonians are coming. We're going to talk about it tonight. But also, guess what? The Medes and the Persians are coming. In the future to Isaiah. Okay. Now, with those little tidbits... Let's read uh, uh, chapter 40, or some of chapter 40. Now remember, 40 through 48, if you had to say what's it about in one word, you'd say this. It's about Babylon. God's dealing with Babylon. God's going to deal here with Babylon. And 40 through 48 is going to show you some things. I just wrote a few of them down in my own thoughts. Here's one thing that's uh, uh, going to show you. The, the one we serve, the true God, is greater and great or majestic compared to any other idol in the world. Now you say, well, I know, but idols don't really do anything around us anymore. Well, I don't know. Think about anything that you give your heart to other than the Lord. Some people give our hearts to hobbies. Some people give a heart to home, home projects. You know what I'm talking about? Their home's everything, and so they're always doing something. And that's good and well. I mean, it's nice to do home projects, and that's, but you know what I'm talking about. When you start idolizing your kingdom more than you do the king, you can do that, you know. You know, here's a litmus test. Is it something that's an idol? <laughs> what, what, if you lost something, would it, quote, unquote, destroy your whole world? You know what I'm saying? Uh, would it just fracture you where you couldn't go on anymore? I'm not, right? Think about that. Or how about this? What, do you, what does your mind go to? What does your mind go to? 
when you just have downtime. I mean, you, you know, I, there was this one time, at one point in my life, I could give you the year, every Super Bowl winner, I could give you the score, I can't do it anymore, I could give you the MVP of every Super Bowl, I could tell you where I was when I was watching the Super Bowl. I could describe most of the plays. Yeah, it's pathetic. Right, Autumn? I see her over there. She's like, what is he talking about? But see, that was an idol for me. That was a total idol for me. One weekend when um, uh, we had two little kids, this is how big of an idol it was for me. Uh, we watched, uh, we were, uh, we had tickets to go watch the number one team in the country versus the number two team in the country, Penn State versus Arizona on Saturday night. Problem was we had two babies. So we drove to Ohio on Friday night, dropped two babies off with my parents, watched a high school football game, got back in the car, drove to Pittsburgh, got up in the morning for a one o'clock game, went to the Arizona versus Penn State football game, drove to New York City, Got up and, and Sunday watched Ohio State versus Miami, then drove back to Pittsburgh, uh, laid down, got some sleep, went over to Ohio, got our kids, and came back on Monday. That's how big of an idol that was to me, you see. And it can be for you in a lot of ways. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to be dealing with, 40 through 48, is, is idols, and how they can, you know, idols can't help you in time of need. I mean, think about it. Football was my idol. What happened if I needed resource and strength? I run to the football? What's that for me? It's shallow. It has nothing. And we could go on and on about all of those things. That's one thing. Hey, God shows his comfort and love for people who have disobeyed. That should resonate with us. God shows his comfort and love for people who he has disobeyed. Because check this out, folks. Isaiah is... The mini gospel or the gospel in the Old Testament, the first 39 chapters are distinct. Chapter 40 through 66 are also distinct. Catch this. And God shows his love and comfort for people who have disobeyed, which is the message of the gospel. 40 through 66 are 27 chapters. How many chapters in the New Testament? 27. 1 through 39 how many chapters in the Old Testament? 39. Oh, by the way, right here in the second verse, in the, excuse me, the third and fourth verse, there's a reference here that G, uh, is going to be used in the Gospels to John the Baptist. How do the Gospels start? With John the Baptist. When you get to the end in chapters 65 and 66, Isaiah is going to be talking about a new creation. What happens in Revelation 21 and 22? We see a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. It is, seriously, the gospel of the Old Testament. So we're going to see here uh, God showing his comfort and love for people who have disobeyed. And he's going to try, listen, not try, he's going to awaken them to his love. Isn't that what he's trying to do or what he does in the New Testament times by the person and work of the Holy Spirit? He awakens us to his love. And he goes to such great lengths to do so. Tonight you're going to see the great lengths he did to get his people back into the land, to be a shout to all the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a call here for Israel to be God's servant Israel to be God's servant to show the world God's love 
Not to be a container of God's love, but to be a conveyor of God's love to all the world so that while it's waiting for the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ, so we see a picture of the God servant here, uh, Israel is God's servant while we wait for the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ. And we're going to see God's prediction of the future. And he wants you to know that he can predict the future. He says it in here. Not predict the future. He knows the future. That's a dumb thing to say on my part. He knows the future, and he wants you to know it. So look at this. How does he start the second half of Isaiah? He says this with this word, comfort. Yes, comfort, verse 1 of chapter 40. My people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. What is he talking about here? He's talking about a time you're going to see as we go on where Israel has been exiled for a period of 70 years. And then this king called Cyrus allows them to go back and to go back into their city and rebuild the temple in the city, right? So the warfare is ended. The Babylonians have been defeated. There's peace and iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand, who? Uh, uh, those from Jerusalem, uh, double for all her sins. Look at this. Did you know this in context? It's fascinating. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is being talked about in the, uh, in the context of an exile in Babylon where they return to, to, to their homeland, Jerusalem. And it's saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway. A highway is a big theme in Isaiah, if you haven't noticed. There's a holy highway. Remember, there's going to be one from Assyria all the way to Egypt. Uh, and here, what he's talking about is he's pre- they're preparing the way f- uh, for the Lord. Because why are they preparing the way? They're actually going to go back into the land and be a great light unto the Gentiles. You see it? But we know from Matthew, don't we? Matthew 3 that the, um, uh, John the Baptist is the ultimate fulfillment of what he's talking about right here for the real preparation of people being reconciled back to God. Does that make sense? You understand that? In the context here, it's just getting the exiles back to Jerusalem. There's a highway, and this is fascinating. When people come back to God, look at this, valleys shall be brought up. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us need our valleys, our low times, to be brought up. You need to know, right, that you're a child of God, and you uh, stand in the grace of God, and uh, your inheritance in Christ. And then there's other people who have uh, pride problem or sin problem and uh, need mountains to be brought low (laughs) and crooked places to be made straight and rough places. There's some rough characters in this fellowship. That's a joke. But there are some rough characters in this fellowship. Are you rough? Are you rough to people sometimes? I am. I need to be smoothed off. And so when we're coming back to the Lord, but here it's talking about them getting back this, through this highway back to Jerusalem in a sense. And uh, all flesh are going to see it together. Look at this in verse 6. Then the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Assyria is gone. 
Babylon's gone, all flesh is grass. All its loveliness is like the flower of the field. That all withers away, but you know this, as Peter recounted in 1 Peter 1.24, but the word of our God, verse 8, stands forever. Whatever you do, if you get nothing out of this sermon here tonight, if you get nothing out of this teaching, if you get nothing out of it, get this. Whatever happens, in fact, do this every time, whoever you, wherever, whatever church you go to, stand on the word of God. It's the surest thing. Go and check what the pastor says. Be a Berean. The word of our God stands forever. All flesh like grass, it will fade away. Oh, but how about this? Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings. The good news in the context of chapter 40 is we get to go back. The good news on this side of the cross is we get to come back. Gospel, good news. We get to come back. Get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the cities, behold your God. Behold the Lord your God will, uh, shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arms and he'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now listen, we're not going to read every verse, but I'm going to tell you something. I know it's not in your one-year Bible plan right now, but... I got to get it that in every week. I got it because I got the mic. So sorry, Cara. <laughs> but Cara's way's right. I know. But anyway, listen. Listen to this. Listen to this. If you'll read these verses, remember what we talked about last week. See, this is the um, backcountry of the Bible. Christians today are not going to go read this generally. But if you do, you're going to be blown away with God because he tells you a lot about who he is in 40 through 48, okay? So you're going to have to fill it in, but I'm going to give you some things here. Remember, there were victories by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and other countries that, that were up against Israel. So some of the people were feeling like, well, wait a second, these people uh, serve false gods. How come we're getting beat all the time? And so from chapter tw or verse 12 through verse 26, God gives Isaiah uh, prophecies and things to say that speaks of God's greatness. In fact, this whole chapter speaks of God being greater than anything on earth or anything in heaven. Anything on earth, 12 through 20. Anything on heaven, 21 through 26. You got that? Uh, go up, up to 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Uh, uh, instead of praising him, they were acting as if he didn't even understand or care. You, understand? you see what I'm saying? Well, think about all of these things that are happening. You got these exiles back in Babylon. Uh, they're thinking to themselves, my goodness, this can happen today, by the way. My goodness, how come the enemies defeated us? We serve the one true and living God. They serve false gods. Guess what people start to say right there? Instead of standing on what we know about God and God's word, guess what we do? We let our uh, emotions spiral out of control, and we start to say stuff like this. <sighs> he doesn't even care. 
He didn't even understand anything I'm going through. The Bible says he does. Jesus uh, uh, was tempted with you uh, in all points, so he knows uh, what we're going through, right? Uh, but but the, there's a tendency there to do that. And God, in this chapter, is trying to say, you, you, if you'll uh, understand who I am, if you'll understand who I am, your way back won't be crooked. <laughs> Your way back will be on the highway. You understand what I'm saying? I'm doing it on my map, in my mind. Look at this. Some other things he does here. Have you not known, verse 28, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't faint. He's not worry or weary. He, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. Folks, he gives power to the weak. That should be a a great uh, thing for us because I'm a weak dude. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. My grace is sufficient for you, he told Paul. Right when Paul thought he was at his weakest. Guys, come on now. He prayed. I'm the, you know, there was, must have been this temptation. There must have been this temptation. There had to have been. He was human. Man, I'm one of the greatest evangelists and church planners in the world. I'm the pioneer here, Lord. I got this little thing going on. Actually, it's more than a little thing. It's really bothering me. Some people think it was something with his eye. Some people think it was something with his back. Lord, I know what you've said. Take it away from me. No answer. A couple weeks go by, maybe a month. Lord, I'm, you, you know who I am, right, Lord? Yeah, I know who you are. Uh, um, take this away from me. A couple weeks go by, no answer. Lord, Lord, what's happening here? Take, take this away from me. And the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but it's red-lettered right here, which means the Lord spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. There's grace in times of need when we're at our lowest. When we're weak, he is strong in you because you're teachable. God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud He gives strength to the weak. How about this? But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And I want you to remember something. These folks were traveling a long distance. There would have been a great temptation to quit and not go back into the promised land, not go where God told you. You get it? But he said, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What does wait uh, mean? It doesn't mean do nothing, sit on the couch and eat bonbons. We were discussing this the other day. What's a bonbon? I'm not sure I know. But anyway, I've heard the term. So uh, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What do they do? They don't do nothing. They hope. They have confident assurance that God is going to work out everything in their life for the good. Let me say that again. Because I don't know that we all know that. He's going to work out everything in your life for the good. We look to God for all that we need. And in waiting, listen to this, involves meditating in the right way, not in the weird way. Meditating on God's character and God's promises. That's waiting. And I'm convinced when we commit to doing that, is when the magic happens, so to speak. God gives you the strength to keep going. He says, you want to be made well? 
yeah, I want to, well, get up and walk. What do you mean? I haven't been able to walk for years. But as soon as he had the faith, just as soon, boom. Right? And that's what's happening here. When we meditate on his character and we hope in the right way, expectant, confident assurance of God's character. So that means we know the attributes of God. We get strength. Well, what happens? We move on into chapter 41. This is where God tells the nations, look at this in verse 21, to present their case against them. This is very courtroom-like. Very courtroom-like. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons here. He, he's uh, 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 bringing forth a case or asking the nations to bring forth a, forth a case here uh, uh, against them. Well, let's just see what it's about. Keep silence before me, uh, O coastlands, or some says islands, or the far places away from the Holy Land. Let the people renew their strength. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Circle that. Circle it. Who is he going to raise up from the east? This guy named King Cyrus. The man from the east is probably King Cyrus. And good, 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 uh, excuse me. God describes him here, and then you're not going to believe it. God actually names a man named Cyrus in Isaiah 44:28 and 45:1, a hundred and fifty years before Cyrus was ever born. Think about it. He prophesied during the Assyrian reign. He didn't just, listen, he didn't just predict that the Babylonians would come and topple the Assyrians. He then said, oh, not only will the Babylonians come and topple the Assyrians, you folks are going to go off into exile into Babylon. And oh, by the way, there's going to be this king. His name's Cyrus. He's going to be from the east, and he's going to come and topple the Babylonians. Now think about this. When the, they were saying this to the exiles, the exiles must have been scratching their head. Come on. Nobody's going to overturn the Assyrians. <laughs> right? God must have been in heaven just chuckling because he knew the beginning from the end. Are you catching it? Here it is. He raised up one from the east who in righteousness called him to his feet. Some people see this. Yes, folks, listen to this. There's going to be some strange things to you and I that he calls Cyrus. Cyrus is doing right things, righteous. And he's calling, they're calling him a shepherd because he's going to shepherd the people back. Think about this. God can use even the unbeliever to get his purposes done. Wow. And nations and kingdoms. Well, this could also be ultimate fulfillment of Jesus Christ who is righteous, but we'll leave that for another day. Here's another theme that happens, chapters 41 through 44, verse 28. He, has a, he says this seven times, fear not. He says it in 41.10. He says it in 41.13, 41.14, 
43 number 1, 43 5, 44 2, and 44 8. In other words, think about it. If you were in exile, if you were in exile, there's part of the exiles that were real comfortable in Babylon. You're going to see that in a minute. They didn't want to come back. And then there's others who wanted to come back, but just like all of us would be, probably they were scared. Can you imagine? Back and forth and back, and where am I going to do and what am I going to, where am I going to live and what am I going to do for work and what, Lord, what are we doing? We're moving all this way across the plains. What are we doing here? So he says, fear not all these times. God's bigger than our fears, folks. So you keep going and uh, go down to verse 8 here. There's, here's another theme that happens in this section. You, Israel, are my servant. Remember this, there were several people called the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses was called a servant of the Lord. David called a servant of the Lord. Prophets were called servants of the Lord. And by the way, in Isaiah 42.1, the next chapter, the Messiah is called a servant of the Lord. Here, Israel is called a servant of the Lord. God's chosen people were serving I've taken them, verse 9, from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you're my servant. I have chosen you, there's grace, and have not cast you away. In fact, in Romans 11, I think it's verse 26, you remember this, God's not done with the Jews then or now. All the Jews or all of Israel shall be saved, the Bible tells us. And last week in Zechariah 12, when he comes back in his second coming, They're going to recognize his pierced hands as the Messiah. We read about that last week. I've chosen you, have not cast you away. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I'll uphold you. I will uphold you with my right hand. And now, over the next several verses, there are going to be four pictures, four pictures that Isaiah Through the Spirit gives us, he gives us the picture that I already read you of a servant, and then he calls, in verse 14, he calls these people worms. Fear not, you worm. You're like, what? See, that's the story of the Bible. We're worms. who He's brought up to meet, to be reconciled back to the Lord. And we've become his servants Right, So he gives a picture of a servant, he gives a picture of a worm, then he uh, gives a picture in 17 through 20 of a desert becoming a garden. And you can see that starting to happen in Israel right now. It's so beautiful. When you go and you're in the northern part of Israel, you're, you're like, this is not what I expected. This is not what I expected. It is lush and beautiful. Not that I didn't expect it to be beautiful, but it's dynamic and and growing and fruit and plants, and it's beautiful. It's like you're in, you know, middle Pennsylvania, how green it is. It's just green. It's amazing. But anyway, so a desert becoming a garden. You can see that in 17 through 20. When they return, there's going to be a prepared land, but we know in the future kingdom, there's going to be rivers and fountains and pools and springs of water. In other words, it'll be vibrant and alive. Okay? And there's another picture, a fourth picture that he gives us here in uh, 
chapter 41, and that's of a courtroom, and that's in 21 through 29. Present your case. He challenges the idols of other nations to prove they really were gods. And look, at, look down in, uh, at the end of uh, 22, or declare us things to come. Show the things that are to come, verse 23. Here's what God says. Show us the things that are to come, you idols, idols of the other people. He was warning his exiles about not getting involved in that again. And remember, they can't show you things that are to come, that we may know that you're gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may do, be dismayed and see it together. I've raised up one from the north. Why did he say east and north? Because it's a long story, but you could only, people from the east would come in from the north into Israel because of the geography and the land. So, but, so he's talking about Cyrus here again. And uh, uh, he, he then goes on to describe here how idols are worthless compared to God. Their works are nothing, he says, and he ends. Their molded images are wind and confusion right there in verse 29. Now go to 42. This is the servant of the Lord. This is the first of four, quote-unquote, servant songs. First of four servant songs in Isaiah. There's a servant song in chapter 49, chapter 50, chapter 52, all the way to, through 53 here. Look at this one. But this is, listen, listen, folks. This is what's happened for you, most of you in here. I don't know everybody's uh, salvation story here. But listen, you've beheld the Lord. Here, what he's saying is, right here, look at this, look at this. Right here in the middle of the, the, the fear, I'm coming, oh man, I got to go back and find my way again in my homeland. He, right there, Isaiah prophesies, yes, but, but, but know this, that the Messiah, the servant, the ultimate fulfillment of the servant is going to come through you people. And so he says, behold, Jesus. And guess what? If you've, been, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, at some point you've beheld and you continue to behold our beloved Lord and Savior and he's shown you who you are. And you've recognized that you needed a savior and you've surrendered your life. You've repented and uh, moved back and your life has been transformed. We've, we're, and we continue to behold the savior. But, but look at this, or the, the, the Messiah. This is my servant whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. So beautiful. I've put my spirit upon him. Do you remember when he was in the Jordan River, right? And what, what descended and was on his shoulder, right? And this is my son, the father said, in whom I'm well pleased. And the, the dove was there and I've put my spirit upon him. And he's going to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He won't cry out nor raise his voice. That's the character of the Lord. Oh my. <laughs> That's not my character. Nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. This one I can hardly say without crying. A bruised reed. He won't break when he sees the ones who are bent over or hurting. He, he won't kick them over. He, he doesn't kick them over. The ones who are hurting and bent, he, he, he brings up tenderly. Or how about this? He says, a smoking flax he won't quench. A smoking flax he won't quench. You know that wick in the candle? That, does this ever bug you that you can't get lit? 
it smokes a little bit, but it just won't, or it comes up a little bit. If, if, listen, if the wick could feel, the wick would feel like a failure. It couldn't do what it was intended to do. Look at this. It says Jesus doesn't snuff him or her out. He, he's patient with them. They're not doing what they're supposed to do yet. Oh, okay. The Lord bears long with them and suffers long with them. Are you seeing it? He's so tender. That's what the Messiah would be. Well, you know this, right? In Matthew 12, you might want to go over there real quick just to see it. Matthew 12, verse 20. Matthew 12, verse 20. Uh, Jesus here is uh, talking about healing on the Sabbath, or he got in trouble because he healed on the Sabbath. And he withdrew, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them, in verse 16, not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and there you go, he's one who's a, bru- a bruised, we, you know, my servant whom I have chosen. He just, this, this passage is quoted by Matthew to say this, That Messiah that was predicted in Isaiah 42 is Jesus himself. Now here, folks, there are some people that believe Isaiah was written by two authors, or maybe even three authors, or maybe even four authors. It's a bunch of nonsense. Here's why. You either believe that it was written by one or two, because it's so miraculous, people can't believe that it can be so miraculous. How could they predict all these things? They must have lived later and put it together. But catch it, folks. Jesus himself quotes from the second half of Isaiah. You understand what I'm saying? He quotes from the second half of Isaiah and and attributes it to Isaiah. And there's other writings from the second half of Isaiah, attributed to Isaiah. In other words, you either believe the Lord Jesus Christ or you believe the higher critics. I know where I'm siding. Well, anyway, you can keep going. Uh, Look in verse 6. I'll keep at the end of it. I'll keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, right? Jesus is the light of the world. You're the light of the world. But Jesus is the light of the world in John 8. Look in verse 8. I'm the Lord, that's my name, and my glory I will not give to another. God doesn't share his glory with others. And then, nor my praise to carve an image. In verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they, they, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Are you catching it? That's a beautiful little verse that no one gets. I tell you about things even before they happen, the Lord says. And the things that I do are made new. You know from Lamentations, there's mercies new every morning, folks. Just like the manna from heaven, there's mercies new every morning. Well, here from verse 10 through 25 uh, in this one, it describes a singing nation, a nation that sings. Guess what happens to God's people when they meet the Messiah? They become a singing people. They become a singing people. There's something that, you know, you don't have to worship in song, but you can in a beautiful way. You can worship at home, uh, not even make a peep, but man, there's something about pouring out your heart to the Lord, isn't there? 
And sing to the Lord, verse 10, a new song and his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. Because, uh, folks, he's telling these exiles who are coming back, we're, I'm going to do something new in your land. I'm going to bring the Messiah through your land. You're going to sing a new song. And, of course, they are. And you can read all of that, all of that um, uh, let me see if there's any uh, famous passages in here. Um, well, you can read that um, uh, to the end. Verse 21 through 25 of that part or that section talks about Israel being disobedient. And so there's even some disobedience even as they're coming back. Uh, because they feel comfortable, and God has to discipline them in verse 25. And it's sad when God disciplines and they don't understand. Right? That's why I think, that's why I think book of James is in there. That's why I think the book of First Peter is in there. Tribulations and chastening, right? So that we can have as much as we can figure out uh, here on this side of heaven uh, what God is doing. We know this, when uh, we are uh, patient or when we uh, stick with God in uh, 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 trials and tribulations, he refines our faith to the place that it's able to give glory and honor and blessing in the middle of the fire. Whoo! Okay, go on to verse or chapter 43. Here the theme of uh, Israel's servant continues and even into chapter 44. Look at this. Here's another fear not right here in verse 1. But now thus says the Lord who created uh, Jacob and he formed you, O Israel, fear not for I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. Here you go. You love this one. I love this one. This is what God does in the middle of suffering or scared times or lonely times or hurting times. If any of you are hurting or lonely or scared, this is for you. It's for me. Because when you and I, when we're walking back and we go through the fire, you won't be burned. Nor shall the flame scorch you, for I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so you think to yourself, well, that's awesome. I mean, he does. He protects us here. But listen, we're going to be in the ultimate place of protection when we're with the Lord for eternity. And there'll be no sickness, no crying, no disease, no COVID. Nothing. Nothing's going to touch you. You're going to have a glorified, resurrected body. Who's tired of sore Achilles tendons? Okay, I am. I hate it. I have to, I walk and walk and walk. And then the next morning, I can't hardly walk as soon as I get up because my Achilles are so hurt. I can't wait till that's over. That's just not even that big of a deal. Some of us are dealing with, you know, awful things, right? And you're going to be leaping and loving and worshiping the Lord. You won't be scorched or burnt. Well, you could keep going on. Uh, in verse 8 here, or 8 through 13, it tells us that Israel is God's witness to the world and his, uh, his servant in the world. And look down in verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am, get it, <laughs> through the nation of Israel, he's going to reveal himself, he did through Jesus Christ, and he uh, uh, is going to tell the whole world that I am the great I am. 
and God's not done with Israel and will, has plans, and we'll be talking about that even more as we move through the book of Revelation. Well, look in verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there's no Savior. Uh, there's no other name by which one can be saved, Acts 4.12 tells us. And besides, or excuse me, I've declared and saved, I've proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, uh, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he. And there's no one who can deliver you out of my hands. I work, and who will reverse it? 14 through 28 here is Israel's uh, new, it's talking about its exodus out of Babylon specifically. Right? It's Exodus uh, out of Babylon. And why would the Lord do it? Look at this. Look down in verse 18. Don't remember the former things. God wants to have a special people. He wants to reveal himself to the world. And look what he does. He says, I know you've been disobedient. I know you've paid the price. But don't remember the former things. Uh, uh, Mercies are new every morning. All is forgiven. (laughs) Who, Who loves that? Yes. All is forgiven. Nor consider the things of old. Behold, behold, I'll do a new thing, and it'll spring forth. Shall you not know it? I'll even make a road. There it is again, the highway, in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me. And uh, look in verse 21. This people I have formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. If you have come into the family of God by faith, by the blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, you were formed. I know what your purpose is. You're formed for him. You're made for him to give glory and honor to him. And you then, in return, we shall declare his praise. And then from 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, God actually pleads with unfaithful Israel, pleads with them to come back. He goes in verse 25, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Now look at this. Think about this. There was no sacrificial system in Babylon, which means they couldn't sacrifice, which means he's doing that because of his mercy and grace at the time. Now, of course, he's still mercy and grace, but he poured out his wrath on Jesus, his son. But but here, they didn't have it. I blot out your transgressions for my own sake. It's because of God's mercy and grace, and I will not remember your sins. And that ultimate fulfillment, again, is at the cross. Well, go to chapter 44. God chose Israel and redeemed them, but he also formed them for himself. He formed them for himself. Chapter 1 through, or excuse me, verses 1 through 8, God, God contrasts his forming of Israel versus the forming of their own gods in verses 9 through 20. Let me say that again so you get that. In 1 through 8 here, God uh, contrasts, he contrasts uh, the forming of Israel in 1 through 8 with the Gentiles forming their own gods in verses 9 through 20. Just one thing here. Look here in um, um, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I'm the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Revelation 1.8, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. There's no God. Holiness is uniqueness. There's nobody like God. And who can proclaim as I do? God does as no one else can do. He tells the future. 
If they could do it, let them declare it to me and set it in order for me, verse 7. Then in 9 through 20, the folly of idolatry, right? This terrible idolatry. Psalm 115 tells us, listen to this. Why does God hate idolatry? Well, first of all, because the safest and greatest place to be is under the shadow of his wings. Uh, You're fully satisfied. You can only be fully satisfied in the Lord. Otherwise, you're you're just always going to be chasing more and more and nothing and nothing. But also in Psalm 115, do you know it says it becomes what you, you become what you worship? It says it there. You become what you worship. Think about it. Man, how, don't you, you, you want to become more and more like Christ, not like the idols. In fact, in 1 John, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. No other gods before me. They're useless, it says in verse 9. They're their own witness there in verse 9. And we can go on and on and on about idols. If you go over to uh, uh, 21 through 23 of that uh, Oh, let me go to 20. Listen to this. And listen, your idol can't deliver your soul in verse 20. Nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? An idol is a lie. My football idol was a lie to me. I thought I could get satisfaction and worth out of being this person who just loved to go around and do those sorts of things. It's just a lie. It's nothing. It's vanity. Well, uh, 21 through 23 Uh, tells us again, Israel's not forgotten. And 24 through 28 tells us that Israel is going to be, or Judah was going to be restored. Okay, now I've lost you a little bit. So come on back in here. Here comes the miraculous again. Look at this. Look at the end of verse, uh, chapter 44, verse 28. (laughs) Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? And he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now listen, that's two king uh, empires removed from the time Isaiah's prophesying. And according to Josephus, raise your hand if you know who Josephus was. Okay, Josephus is an extra-biblical historian at the time. He was actually a Jewish man who turned redcoat and became an official historian for the Romans. But he wrote about the time of the Jews. Okay? Now listen to this. According to Josephus, extra-biblical history, the Jewish, or, or, when Syrah, or Cyrus took Babylon, when Cyrus took Babylon... The Jews brought him the scroll of Isaiah. They brought him the scroll of Isaiah, showed him that his name was in their book, which was written 200 years before. And this king was so amazed that God would actually call him by name in his scriptures that he responded to uh, this and gave uh, the decree for the rebuilding of the temple. And you know where you can find the decree? Tell me what book. Ezra, whoever said that, good job. Ezra, you can see it in Ezra. Right in the first chapter, chapters one, or verses 1 through 4, you actually see the decree. If you want to see the fall of Babylon, go to Daniel 5. Okay? It's all in there. Okay, but here he says, 
listen to this. He's going to be my shepherd, an unbeliever that God is using. And he's going to perform and say, he's going to actually say, you can build the temple. Rebuild it. Now think about what Isaiah must be thinking. The Isaiah, <laughs> the temple hasn't been destroyed at the time that he's receiving the prophecy. Are you catching this? So he must be saying, can you imagine what that must have been between him and God? Uh, okay, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and okay, I got that, Lord, and he was going to perform all my pleasure, got it, no problem, and he's going to say to Jerusalem, you shall be built? What do you mean? Does that mean Jerusalem is going to be knocked down? And then to the temple, you're found, the pen must have fallen out of his hand. What? What's going to happen to the temple? That's this. And he says Cyrus is going to be able to come back. Well, look at this. 45 through 48 deals with the overthrow of Babylon exclusively. There is a famous, or excuse me, a theme throughout 45 through 48, these chapters, and it's this. I am the Lord and there's no one else. You find it several times. But look at this. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates won't be shut. Uh, look down here in verse 3. I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I am the Lord. In other words, you come in and you can have it all. You can be able to take it all. Uh, you who call you by your name uh, am the God of Israel, ver verse 4. For uh, Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. Can you imagine if you were reading this and you were Cyrus? I've named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there's no other. There's no other God beside me. Uh, uh, keep going on. Uh, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. It actually says evil in King James verse uh, uh, the King James Version, and if you have questions about that theological argument, I'll pass that on to somebody else. No, I'm joking. <clears throat> I, the Lord, do the, all these things. Woe to him, verse 9, who strives with his maker. Why? Well, listen, why would God put that in there? Think about this. You're in exile, and you're like, Lord, you're using all these different kingdoms to kind of thrash us a little bit and displace us and put us out. Why are you doing this to me or to us? Look what it says in response. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Why would you strive with the potsherd or the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth? Shall the clay say to him his form uh, forms it? What are you making? Well, you know, we say that. I, I give you my example about Monday mornings or complaining about your job. If you're complaining about your job, you know what you're saying to the Lord? You're saying you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm striving with my Lord. If the Lord's put you in a, a marriage, if you're in a marriage and you're complaining about the spouse or whatever, oh, well, the Lord doesn't know what you're doing, what he's doing, right? Well, lots of things, but, and we could go on and on. Okay, keep going. Verse 13. I have raised Cyrus up. It says him. I've raised him up in righteousness, and I'll direct all his ways to do God's will. He's going to build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord. The Lord here is the only Savior. 
right? That's what the, 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 the end of this chapter is telling us, or the remaining of this chapter is telling us, that the Lord is the only Savior. Look down in first, verse 15. Truly, you are God, you uh, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced. Uh, all of them, they shall go in confusion who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord. There is a future for Israel. Why do you think I keep telling you that? Romans eleven twenty six. Why do you think I keep telling you that? Because that doctrine is under attack in the American church. That doctrine is under attack. Yes, uh, this applies in the near fulfillment to them coming back, but they're going to be saved in a sense, not in a sense, in, in, in the coming kingdom with an everlasting salvation. Do you catch that? With an everlasting salvation. Well, you guys are looking at me with a blank stare, but that is important. Circle that and make sure you know it. Well, you keep going. Uh, uh, look in verse 20. Idols can't save. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. You have escaped. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their image and pray to a God that cannot save. Look down here right before verse 22. A just God and a Savior. There's none besides me. Did you know this next verse is how, what God used for Charles Spurgeon to get saved? The next verse. Here it is. Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. What story from the Old Testament do you remember says, look to me and be saved? Remember the bronze serpent when he had to hold it up and there were snakes all around biting people and they just said, look up there and you'll be saved. Well, that's what it uh, uh, gives you images of. But here, look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there's no other and I've sworn by myself the world has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath, he shall say. Does that sound familiar? See, see, there has to be a future in my opinion as I read the Bible. Because when Philippians said uh, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord both under the earth and above, right? Remember this says this? I say to myself, well, okay, if that's true, it ain't happening now, so when's it going to happen? It's going to happen in the future. That's going to come true, right? He is the one. Well, chapter 46, chapter 46, look at the first verse. He contrasts dead idols and the living God. Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Babylonian sun god is Bel. His son was Nebo, who was the uh, God of learning and writing, education. Isn't that interesting? And their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. It's like a picture of the, uh, the, the idols uh, being carted away out of the city. But both together can't stop Cyrus. Do you catch that? Cyrus won't be stopped. They're sun gods, any of their gods. They couldn't stop him. They, he's going to prevail because God is behind it. And you could read uh, this entire thing here. By the way, in verse 11, he calls a bird of prey from the east. Some believe that's, uh, again, speaking of Cyrus because Persia's symbol was the eagle. Interesting, right? Well, uh, here in chapter 47, verses 1 through 15, the city is destroyed. The proud queen in verse 7 
is destroyed. The city of Babylon is destroyed. Why were they destroyed? What is, Babylon is always a picture of the world. Why were they destroyed? What was so bad about Babylon? Look in verse 8. What's this sound like? Sounds to me like us. They're given to pleasures. They love to dwell securely. You know, you know, just if I just have my home and my car and my work and, you know, I'm just safe and secure, then I'll be happy. <laughs> Sounds funny. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things if they're not our idols. But anyway, who say in our, your heart, I am and there's no one else besides me. Do you catch that? <laughs> That's describing me without the Lord and maybe some of you. I am. In other words, you make yourself a, your own God. I'm so self-centered. What was going on in Babylon? They were given to pleasures. They wanted to dwell securely. They, do you know that the walls were said to be like 200 or 375 feet high? And some say that they were somewhere between 80 and 90 feet thick, the walls of Babylon. They had 275 watchtowers around the city. And when Cyrus came in, it was impenetrable. But what did he do? Downstream, he diverted the Euphrates River so that the water would dry up and they could go under the city. And that's what happened in Daniel 5. And that's where we get in that chapter. I love it. Don't you love it? Like Adam's apple, that comes from the Bible. But also handwriting is on the wall. What is it? Mene, mene, tark. What's that? Tekel, Farson. You've been weighed in the balance, Babylon, and you've been wanting. In other words, I'm overthrowing you. I'm overthrowing you. So why am I telling you this? There's no God besides our God. He'll get his purposes done. Cyrus uh, is... Um, uh, you know, the one that he's going to use. And the thing that was so bad about Babylon is that they were given to pleasures and they called themselves little gods. But that's America. That's America. Okay. Just a few things and we're almost done. We're actually going to be done early. Last week was 8.30. I'll be done in two minutes. Look in verse 12. Sorceries can't stop any of this astrologers can't stop any of this. Don't deal with it. Get away from that stuff. Just look to the Lord. Look in verse, chapter 48. There are some J Jewish folks who were comfortable in exile and didn't want to go back. But we see here God's grace towards Israel. God's grace towards Israel. Look at this. Hear this, O house of Jacob, verse 1, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellspring of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness. They use his name, but it's not sincere. They use his name. They talk about how they're uh, people of God or the family of God. We do that in, the, in America. We do that in the Christian church, but not in truth and righteousness. We don't do it with a real heart. We, we draw near with our lips, but our hearts aren't, aren't close. And look down in verse 4. They were obstinate, and their neck was an iron sinew, and their brow was bronze. 
They didn't want to go back, some of them. But he's going to stick with them. And you can read down through verse 11. Look down here at verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. I'm going to refine you, yes. I'm going to test you in the furnace, yes. But I'm going to bring you back and show the world the gospel. That's what this is saying here. It's a plan to redeem Israel that takes place in 12, verse 12, through the rest of the chapter. Look at this in verse 18. Oh, that you had heeded my commands, then your peace would have been like a river, should be a song. And your righteousness like the waves of the sea, your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring of your body, like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. She should have obeyed me in the first place, he says. So here it comes. Here you go. Verse 20. So go forth from Babylon. Flee from these Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, promise this, or proclaim this. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, and they did not thirst when he led them through the desert. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock, and the waters gushed out. Of course, talking about their first time in the wilderness. Why, if, he, if, he, if he provided for you in the wilderness the first time, he's saying, wouldn't he provide for you in the second time? And there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So let's think about that. All right, we're done. But let's think, ab- think about that for a minute. What, what do we learn here about God? We, we learn that we serve the one true and living God. We also learn that there's a danger in mixing in other gods with the one true living God. In fact, if we do it, we can become like the thing that we worship. God doesn't say, worship me, and if you worship a few other things, that's okay too. No, he says, worship me exclusively. And if any of these other things that are idols in your life are idols, get rid of them. Thank goodness we sang that song tonight. Get rid of them. Don't make them a place where they, or make, don't give them a place where they possess you. You can't do without. The safest and greatest place to be is under the shadow of his wings. You're going to be most satisfied in Christ when you're fully glorifying as much as we can the Lord. You know what I'm saying? The other things aren't going to satisfy perpetually or, or forever. They won't do it. You learn so many things in here. You learn that God's word does come true, even if it takes a long time. You learn this, that when the Lord's done it, he'll do it again. That should be a song. Don't we sing that song too? Yes, we sing that song. He'll do it again. He, he took you through the wilderness. He'll give you something to drink. Where, listen to this. I, I want you to know this. Somebody may need to hear this tonight. Where God guides, I'm stealing this from Chuck Smith, he provides. And some of you might right now be wondering, should, God's calling to me, me to this thing, but I don't know if I can handle it or do it or have the resources for it, or, or whatever. You make up, like I do, excuses. But if God's calling, to you, it, calling you to it, he will not only guide you, he'll provide for you. 
And so there can be, listen, one of the things we want to be about is equipping you for your ministry. The person back here shouldn't be doing all the ministry, and he doesn't in this place. But I'm saying, as a principle of the Bible, the pastor not doing all the ministry. What is God calling you to do? Is he calling you to something? Has he spoke to you about something? And have you said, later, Lord, later, Lord, because I don't know how it'll get done. Well, what this tells you is that God, where God guides, he'll provide. Where God leads, he'll make the road that's crooked straight. He'll even knock down mountains if he has to or bring up valleys if he needs to to get you to the place that he's calling you to. So here, I'll pray. You guys are hanging in there beautifully. We did nine chapters. But see, here's what I want you to do, is I want you to get an overview of Isaiah. I want you to get an overview, and then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the backcountry yourself. I want you to hang out there and camp. I can't lead you there. You need to do that yourself. Well, I can lead you there, but you know what I'm saying. And the glory comes when it's just you and the Lord and his word, and you're finding these truths out that are so glorious, you almost, they're unspeakable. So I'm going to pray, and here's what I want to pray. If there's somebody in here that the Lord's been showing you, he wants you to step out somewhere. And you've been making excuses. When I got to Pittsburgh, here's the excuse I made. I, I knew it. The Lord put this somewhere down deep in my whole being. I want you to start a home fellowship. But for several years, here's what I said. Lord, I know nobody in Pittsburgh. I don't know anybody. When I know somebody, some more people, Lord, I'll start the Bible study. And you've heard the story several times. My dad died. And that's when you're like, whoa, time is short. So let's pray. And it, give it to the Lord. Is there some place the Lord's leading you, a note to send, a forgiveness to extend? a conversation you need to have with somebody, a ministry he's calling you to. Let's pray about it. Lord, we come together as brothers and sisters and we lift up this time. And Lord, is there something that you're doing? Have you called us somewhere and we've said no, Lord? Have we been disobedient, wanting to stay comfortable and in our own spots, the places where you have us? Or Lord, are you calling us to venture out somewhere in faith? If you are, Lord... We recognize that you will guide and provide and lead and all kinds of other things. Lord, you'll do the work. You'll go before us. You'll, be, you'll battle on our behalf. You'll help us and guide us. And Lord, I just pray for anyone here who's thinking about something that they need to do, that you'd give them and us the resource and strength to go do it. Maybe somebody here needs to say they're sorry to their spouse or ask for forgiveness. That's a better way of saying it. Or maybe somebody here has a big 
thing that you've put on their heart, a dream, that, but not a dream, it's something from you, Lord, that they just keep saying, ah, that could never happen. Lord, I just pray you would help them and guide them in their way. And I pray, Lord, if you should tarry, that through these people who are sitting here, many would come to know you in a real and saving way as you give them divine appointments this week and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.